I'd like to begin our morning uh, with a prayer, so I ask you to please stand as we ask the Lord's blessing on our time. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Almighty God and Father, we, your children, come before you in our need, and we ask you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Grant us your spirit to settle our hearts and to focus our minds. May the light of the Holy Spirit bring us clarity to see reality as it is. May the fire of the Holy Spirit bring us charity that we may always respond in a manner worthy of your children. We ask you to inspire every thought, word, and action of ours. And we make all of these prayers in the holy name of Jesus, invoking his most precious blood, invoking also the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the Immaculate Conception, and St. Joseph, her most chaste spouse. And now we, your children, come before you, and in our weakness we pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. First of all, I I should mention that the decorations are not specific for this conference. Um, They are from the, the high school play, both last night and then again this evening. Some thanks are in order, and, uh, and also some truth in advertising, uh, depending which poster you saw. It was in various orders, uh, but this is being sponsored by uh, the Institute of Catholic Culture, St. John the Beloved Parish, and the Diocese of Arlington Office of Family Life. But, but really, the lion's share of the work has been the Institute of Catholic Culture, and so I want to recognize uh, that outfit and um, encourage you to take advantage of uh, the many great talks that they have. Uh, but uh, Sabatino Carnazzo, he runs this, uh, the Institute of Catholic Culture, and he has in the past called it uh, adult catechesis, which I've always thought is a very modest description of it, that uh, really a lot of what is given there is, is far beyond catechesis and uh, is something much stronger, much higher. So I really encourage you to, to get involved and to look at some of the flyers there that advertise upcoming events and also uh, to look at the pamphlet that helps you to become a contributor, uh, a benefactor of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I also want to thank O'Connell High School for uh, not only uh, allowing us to use this venue, uh, but also they, they went to great sacrifices to sort of clear out things and, um, and, and fit us in right between two you know, plays and, uh, from the drama department. So I want to, to thank them publicly for, uh, for their hospitality. And also in the, in the lobby are books for sale on the issue that we will be addressing this morning. And uh, I ask you to take advantage of uh, the many books that we have there uh, to help you understand this issue more, to deepen your understanding of it. Turning to the issue of today's conference, Same-Sex Attractions, which is becoming more and more of a public issue in, uh, just in culture in general, and obviously in politics, 
Uh, families are struggling with it more and more. And so it's very important for us to understand how should we respond to this. And the response always has to proceed from first the proper understanding. So first, we want to understand the issue, and then with the proper understanding, then we can respond charitably and justly uh, to those who are struggling with it, to those who are affected by this issue in any way. And so in, pro- in approaching this, I would like first to begin with just an articulation of the church's teaching on human sexuality in general. And w- when I say that, I immediately kind of want to qualify it because it's really not the church's teaching in the sense that it's her exclusive domain. As It's not the church's teaching the way the Trinity or the Eucharist is the church's teaching. No, when we talk about human sexuality as the church's teaching, it is simply the church giving articulation to what is true about human nature. This is not something that is a divinely revealed truth, but it is something that can be discerned just in reflection on the human person. In other words, we don't have to be Catholic to understand it and to accept it, don't have to be Christian, and to a certain extent, don't even have to believe in God. And so it's important to begin with the understanding of human sexuality in general because we look ridiculous if we address the issue of homosexuality or same-sex attractions in isolation, as if that is the only uh, sexual issue in our culture, as if that is the only area of confusion. Uh, It is not. It's been preceded now by a generation, really, of confusion in the area of human sexuality. So what is the truth of human sexuality? Well, the beautiful thing is human sexuality has meaning. It has meaning. And we want things in our lives to have meaning, especially those aspects that are most intimate to us. We want them to mean something. And that's beautiful. But it's also demanding, because in order for something to have meaning, it must have limits. Strictly speaking, to define something, that is, to give something meaning, is to set its limits, to say it goes this far and no further. And so human sexuality has meaning, a profound and beautiful meaning. And in order for that meaning to be maintained, we have to observe its limits. And what is the meaning? Well, that it is ordered to two things. It is ordered to life and to love. Paul VI called the procreative aspect and the unitive aspect of human sexuality. Life and love. And so physically speaking, of course, as we all know, Human sexuality is ordered towards new life. In fact, it makes no sense apart from that. The human genitalia make no sense except in union with another who is, who is genuinely other and not the same. In order for this just physically, biologically to make sense, uh, we have to acknowledge that human sexuality is ordered to the generation of new life doesn't always end up that way, does not always work out, but it is ordered in that direction. And the other purpose of it is to love. And this is something that distinguishes us from the animals, that the sexual act is not merely for procreation, it is not merely for reproduction as as it is for the animals, but rather for us it is also an expression of love. 
The union of a man and a woman is physical language. It, it, is, it expresses the one flesh unity. It is the language of the body expressing the oneness of two lives. So life and love, these are the two meanings, purposes of human sexuality. It is ordered towards these things. And to frustrate the order to one of these two is to do violence to human sexuality or to the sexual act. And the church teaches and has always taught, and not only the church, but other moral uh, thinkers and other moral groups have taught that to frustrate one of these two ends is to do violence to human sexuality or to the sexual act. And so all acts of unchastity are a violation either of life or of love. Either it's simply seeking sexual gratification or, as we're seeing in, in other areas, is we're trying to manipulate things just for reproduction. The most notable example of this and perhaps the, the most uh, dangerous one is contraception. This past year, there was a lot in the press about the celebration of the 50th anniversary of the pill. Ironically, it fell on Mother's Day, at least in the media's reckoning, which is a bitter irony indeed. Contraception already violates the principles of human sexuality. It already separates life and love, preventing life from coming about and saying, well, we still want the love, we just don't want the life. We want sexuality to be ordered in this direction, but not in that. And we've discovered that the two must always go together. And if we try to have one without the other, we find that it's impossible. What contraception does is it removes the distinctly heterosexual aspect of sexuality. Contraception removes really what is male and female about human sexuality. With contra when contraception is used, there's no reason really for the two participants to be male or female anymore because the distinctiveness, the distinction between their bodies is no longer relevant. So we can see how contraception really has paved the way for the issues that we are facing today because it violates the proper ordering of human sexuality. It rejects one of the meanings, one of the ends or purposes. With that in mind, we can turn towards the issue of same-sex attractions and consider what the church teaches about these things. And again, this is not the exclusive domain of the Catholic Church. It is a teaching that is shared by many. What the church teaches is found in the catechism. It's a very, it's three paragraphs, very simple, at the same time very profound. And the way I like to approach it is talk about the three levels of the teaching. Help us to understand exactly what is being taught and therefore how to approach the issue and how to approach particular persons. The first, the outermost level, if you will, is homosexual actions. And the church has taught in accord with many throughout the centuries that homosexual actions are intrinsically disordered, meaning they violate the proper ordering of human sexuality. They cannot achieve 
either life, which is obvious, or love, because they lack the complementarity of a man and woman that is necessary for a genuine expression of human love in the sexual realm. They are, to say that they are intrinsically disordered means that they can never be justified under no circumstances. It doesn't matter how much goodwill or sincerity is present. The act itself is disordered. The church teaches this about other aspects as well. A contraceptive act uh, is wrong as well. It's intrinsically disordered. And so that is the first level. Homosexual actions, they're intrinsically disordered. And I want to point out that I have not said that homosexuals are intrinsically disordered or those who have some homosexual attractions or those who have same-sex attractions. The church has never taught that. And I, I feel the need to point that out because many times that accusation will be leveled against the church. The church says that people with homosexual attractions or same-sex attractions are intrinsically disordered. The church has never taught that. The actions themselves are intrinsically disordered. And they're not the only intrinsically disordered actions, but they're the ones that the church feels compelled to speak out most strongly about at this present time. Second, the attractions. Now we are going to a more intimate aspect of the person. Our actions are something... Uh, about us, but they're more external. When we talk about same-sex attractions or homosexual attractions, we're talking about something that is more personal. And in working with many men and women who have same-sex attractions, well, these attractions can be more or less deeply felt and can be very keenly felt such that they feel as though they're a part of the person. And the traditional understanding of emotions or attractions is that they're not part of of the person, there's something that the person experiences. So what is the teaching about these attractions? If someone has an attraction to another person of the same sex or an inclination to same-sex attractions, what is the status of that? Well, first of all, it is morally neutral to begin with. In other words, the person is not culpable for mere attractions any more than a person is culpable for a feeling of anger that comes over him suddenly when you're driving around in northern Virginia traffic. You know, If that were the case, we'd all be guilty of sin, right? When we experience an attraction or emotion of some kind, we are not immediately culpable. The question is, what is done with that emotion? What is done with that attraction or that inclination? In the Catechism, the Church describes same-sex attractions as objectively disordered. What does this mean? Well, first, notice again, it is not the person who is disordered. It is the attraction. And what this means is that the inclination to a sexual union of a person of the same sex is disordered because it is not the proper ordering of our sexuality. That is not the way our sexuality ought, that not the direction it ought to go. And so it is disordered because it's not seeking the proper goal or end of human sexuality. It is not the person who is disordered. The attractions are. And the attractions can be more or, or less keenly felt. It can be a deeper 
uh, or lesser attractions that the person feels. Our culture would have us believe that it's always the same, that a person is either either gay or not, either lesbian or not. Well, that's not the case. Sometimes the attractions are are very deeply felt, as I mentioned before, felt so deeply that they seem to be a part of the person. Other times, the attractions can be occasional, can be, can light, it can be light and passing. And so, it's not as absolute as our culture and especially the media would have us think. The third and the deepest level, the person. Our actions are something we do, so they're something external about us. Our attractions are more intimate, more personal and interior. The person is the most interior, the most intimate aspect of who we are. What does the church teach about those who have same-sex attractions? They must be accepted with respect, compassion, and sensitivity. Every sign of unjust discrimination in their regard should be avoided. These persons are called to fulfill God's will in their lives And if they are Christians, to unite to the sacrifice of the Lord's cross, the difficulties they may encounter from their condition. They are called to live chastity by the virtues of self-mastery that teach them inner freedom, at times by the support of disinterested friendship, by prayer and sacramental grace. They can and should gradually and resolutely approach Christian perfection. In other words, they're called to be saints. This is a beautiful teaching, that those who have fallen into homosexual actions can, by repentance and prayer and the grace of God, approach Christian perfection. Those who have same-sex attractions can, by the same means, approach Christian perfection. Where else will you find such a dignity bestowed upon people, that they are called to be saints? They they, They can and ought to strive for that Christian perfection which is arriving in the likeness of Christ. The person is a fundamental good. No person is ever evil or wicked. However many evil and wicked things a person may do, the person, as a person, is a good, created in the image and likeness of God, redeemed by the blood of Christ, and by baptism made a child of God. This is what the church teaches about the person, about all persons, no matter what attractions they may have. This gets me to a point regarding language. In the past, the church has used the phrase, the homosexual person, and and the church has deliberately, in her official documents, sort of backed away from that phrase. Why? Well, because there are only really three kinds of persons. Divine, there are only three of them. Angelic, there are a lot of them, okay, and human. We don't want to qualify a person by their sexual attractions. We don't want to truncate the identity of a person by their sexual attractions. We don't want to collapse a person's identity so that it becomes the sum total of their sexual attractions. That would be an injustice to the person. And that's why the church does not do that. Rather, distinguishing actions, attractions, and the person, the church calls all persons to holiness.
I work with a group called Courage. And most of the work in Courage is really to distinguish the attractions, rather the actions, the attractions, and the person. To kind of remove the label that has been put on many people and reveal the goodness, the intrinsic goodness of the person. Let me point out two extremes in our culture that would like to collapse sexual attraction into personal identity. They are on the two extremes. One extreme, of course, is the homosexual culture, homosexual lobby. Uh, those who push for homosexual marriage and who want a complete endorsement of the homosexual lifestyle as uh, morally legitimate. They would like all who have same-sex attractions to believe that because they have same-sex attractions, they ought to live the homosexual lifestyle because their attractions define who they are. That is an injustice. That is not fair to the person. It traps a person in a certain identity. And I have spoken with enough men and women who have tried to live that And it has not brought them any peace. It has not brought them the peace that was promised because it placed a label on them that was not accurate. So that is one extreme that collapses attractions, sexual attractions, into the identity of the person, collapses those two things together. And then another extreme. Pardon my language here, but it is their slogan. It is the extreme that says God hates fags. What's interesting about these two extremes is they both fall into the same error. And the error is this, that your sexual attractions define who you are. So if you are attracted to a person of the same sex in a sexual manner, then you must be homosexual and therefore live the homosexual lifestyle. And don't you dare try to live chastity. And then the other extreme says the same thing. If you have same-sex attractions... That defines who you are, and since God disapproves of same-sex actions, God hates you. It is hard to say which extreme is worse. They both do great damage, each in its own way. And right between the two extremes is the true teaching. I like to use the image of our Lord on the cross, and it's it's a good thing we have a crucifix right here above us, Uh, Our Lord was stretched. Uh, He was stretched by two extremes, persecuted in that manner and stretched on the cross. If we bear witness to this truth, we will experience a similar thing, and the church does. And the apostolate of courage does as well. There are those over on this side who says, well, those people who have same-sex attractions are bad and shouldn't be tended to, shouldn't be cared for. We shouldn't reach out to them. And then on the other side, they say the same thing. You shouldn't reach out to them because, well, they should live the homosexual lifestyle. And so there is the church in the likeness of her bridegroom stretched out in bearing witness to the truth. The apostolate of courage is simply an apostolate to help men and women who have same-sex attractions to live chastity. You wouldn't believe the persecution, the animosity that that can inspire. Some years ago in St. Louis, when we had our annual conference, uh, there were a lot of uh, protesters who, who were going to come, and, 
and uh, Father John Harvey, who's a living saint, uh, he very wisely anticipated the protest and held a press conference. And everybody arrived, and they're loaded for bear. And Father Harvey explained, these people want to live chastity. We want to help them. What's the problem? And they all put down their notepads and pens and said, well, yeah, that's kind of a good point. Uh, There's no problem there. This seems like a very, very simple thing, and it is. The apostolate of courage is a very modest but a very, very important apostolate, simply to help men and women with same-sex attractions to live chastity. And in order to do that, uh, we meet weekly, and we give... uh, they support one another by uh, disinterested friendships, as the Catechism talks about. In other words, those friendships that are helping one another to strive for holiness. And, of course, uh, by way of encouragement to the sacraments. In these ways, they encourage one another to live chastity. The word courage, the name courage, is so fitting for this group. Because these are men and women who avoid both extremes, who could give in to either discouragement from one extreme or dissolute life in the other, and they choose neither, but they choose the difficult route of the cross to address their same-sex attractions and to strive for holiness, not despite them, but precisely because of them. This morning, I am glad to say we have a member of Courage with us today, and he has uh, very generously taken time to uh, come down here um, from the Northeast and uh, to... Uh, speak before you this morning to give you his testimony, uh, talk about uh, uh, his journey uh, to and in courage. The way courage works, no one comes to the meeting except through me. Uh, That is kind of the standard operating procedure uh, for courage chapters uh, throughout the country, throughout the world. And uh, we observe a strict anonymity, and uh, we have with us today Jonah, who, as I said, is uh, visiting the area and has come to give uh, his, his witness. So I ask you to please welcome him and give him uh, your respectful attention. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. I'd like to just start with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, and you shall renew the face of the earth. It's great to see so many uh, people here today. Um, A little late in arriving, I took a wrong turn. And uh, although that's a very good analogy of my story, uh, that was not at all my intention. Um, I'd like to thank Father Scalia for inviting me. Uh, I'm sure we all have tremendous respect for Father Scalia and all the good works that he does. And uh, he's one man you just can't say no to. So um, very happy to be here. Very happy to be to be asked. Um, Let's see, starting from the beginning, I guess, that's a good place to start. um, I'm one of seven children, a Catholic family from uh, Massachusetts. Um, My mother's second marriage, I have some older uh, half-siblings. 
um, mixed marriage. My father is uh, secular Jewish. And like a lot of uh, Massachusetts Catholics, um, we were fairly nominal Catholic. I think that's especially true for mixed marriages. Uh, it's just, I think, a lot easier for the family to not go to church than to raise um, the conflict. Um, but we did go to church, and uh, we did all receive the sacraments. And uh, my parents did a agree uh, in writing in those days uh, with a signature to raise the children Catholic. Um, my father, uh, this great guy, um, was a big athlete when he was younger. Um, my brothers uh, were all very good at athletics, and I was... Um, one of the younger ones, and I uh, did not have this uh, gift of athletics at all. Um, although not completely true, I was always an avid tennis player, runner, bicyclist, and other things. But, um, you know, my father was a great baseball player, played basketball, football, all that kind of more guy stuff. And my brothers did too, and... Um, uh, I think that was that was kind of an initial conflict with uh, the father. I think there's a tremendous amount written and tremendous amount has been said about uh, SSA issues and parental relationships, and I think there's tremendous truth in that. Not only in my story, but it's just a commonality. Uh, not not maybe not universal, but it's a, it's a big commonality you see with these issues. Um, in our family, my father and I, we, we just had different temperaments, um, which is, of course, no fault of my father. It's no fault of, of me, but uh, we were just different. And I think for my father, I would, if I were to speak for him, I would say it was he was young and busy raising a large family and working and trying to keep the house together. And the other brothers were just easier. They were much more like him, and I was much less like him. I was, from early on, I was always very uh, musical, uh, more artistic, much more bookish, and um, less rough and tumble, to put it in a nutshell. Um, you know, those of you uh, uh, may rem some of you may remember the TV show The Odd Couple. I think of me and my father sort of like the odd couple, with me like the Felix Unger and my dad something like the Oscar Madison <laughs> character. Um, I mean, those are kind of stereotypes, but they it works in a way. Um, and I think this is what a lot of people on the SSA political spectrum say when they say this is all genetic. I mean, temperament may very well be genetic. I mean, I, I think our temperaments are visible from very, very early on, but uh, I think it's what we do with our temperaments that is not genetic uh, at all. Um, but I remember early on not really identifying with my father. He was just not who I wanted to be, really. I always felt that I was different from him. Um, 
my mother, uh, very loving uh, woman, very much, um, she, uh, you know, did did with uh, with she did the best with what she knew. I think she loved me very ferociously. My mother's very Irish Catholic, very strong uh, woman, very um, and very loving. And I think she kind of protected me or took me closer to her. And I imagine that was just her natural gut response to the situation. Um, I was always her closest one. And when I grew up later, I'd be sort of her confidant. And it was a bit maybe too close. Um, But um, I think she was doing the best she could with uh, what she knew. I I do recall the early years, um, I would, they they kind of enrolled me in Little League and basketball and, uh, you know, that that wasn't really going to work. I I really didn't enjoy those things and and I think forcing it on me only made me feel more uh, disconnected in a way, although I I really think they were just, just trying to help. I think that I'm sure they saw the issues and they were, they thought those were probably the best solutions. Um, I always, as a child, I always wanted to take music lessons, art lessons, all these things. And I remember being embarrassed towards my father for this. So I imagine that has to do with his feelings as well as my feelings as a child. My parents ended up separating when I was about. 11, which for me was very difficult. My mother always said growing up that I was the sensitive one. I'd always heard that. When they separated, it was very, it made adolescence very, very difficult. I think all of us children in the family became a bit rebellious. Uh, if there's not a father in the house, there's, no matter how much your mother tries to lay down the law, you know she's going to love you and feed you and How's you at the end of the day, no matter what you do? And as teenagers, we certainly had fun testing the limits. Also, looking back on it, I think it's quite clear that as a teenager, I was very depressed about this. I remember, uh, I, I just know from growing up, from maturity, that when I'm not feeling well, I tend to isolate or not be with people, although I tend to be very, very, very outgoing. And I remember in high school, it was uh, I really didn't keep friendships the way I normally would and became a little more isolated. And this was all following the separation. Um, I think I really relied on, even though the parents argued, knowing that they were both there gave me stability, which, which was not there after their separation. And I remember my grades uh, went downhill and... Um, looking back on it, it, I think I was very vulnerable at that time. And that's, of course, a very crucial time uh, when you're an adolescent. And my sociability, my social skills at, at high school um, decreased. Combine that uh, with normal adolescence, you know, the, the the devil is like a wolf. You know, a wolf will chase a pack of animals, and it will always find the weak one, and that's the one who gets attacked. And I kind of see my 
being seduced as a teenager is something like that. I was, um, I think I was just vulnerable and someone saw an opportunity. I wish I could say I was catechized enough to feel guilty about it, but I did not. And actually it was a friend's cousin, an older cousin. I was 16, he was 19. I remember thinking, this was in the 70s, not the highest point in our uh, cultural moral history. I I remember as a teenager, uh, the music on the radio, uh, pop songs about um, bisexuality, and sort of that was something in Hollywood, like somehow it was associated with this fantasy land of the rich and the elite. And I just sort of passed it off without Uh, any reflection whatsoever, like, well, I must be, like, part of that group. And it didn't really bother me. My, I always thought that I would get married and have a large family. I always thought that that was my path in life uh, because I was from a large family. And I thought, I always felt bad for the only children, the people who were only uh, children, much less common in those days than today, um, because I thought being from a large family was the best thing in the world, even though it was kind of a, you know, thinly, uh, loosely held together family, I still thought it was um, fun to be from a large family, and I always thought that that was my future. But after this experience, and then, and that 19-year-old boy, he was self-identified as being gay, he started to kind of show me around like these bars and things in our area. And for for a teenage boy who never quite knew his place as an adolescent and, always, and felt a little awkward at that stage in life, uh, especially in this context, um, where just by virtue of being being young, you're treated like some sort of celebrity. Um, it it felt it 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 filled it filled a, a, a need, even though if it was even though if that may have been a a poor way to fill it. I mean, Lucifer means bearer of light. It is a light, even though it's a false light. Um, I remember quite clearly feeling that I was part of the secret society that was very exciting, that no one else knew about, that the rest of the world seemed very bland by comparison. And um, somehow I was part of this, you know, the movie star set or something like this. I mean, that's, these are just the rationali- rationalizations that I, I recall giving myself. So that was sort of the introduction to it all. Um, I had been catechized, uh, I had received all of my sacraments, but at this point I I wasn't practicing anything at all. Um, I think I was 16 and 17 at this point. Uh, 18, I moved to Boston to go to college. All of that stuff sort of continued. I did did have uh, long-term relationships with other guys. Um, one lasting nine years, and um, 
very different concept of a relationship. I don't, you know, this whole marriage thing today, just a very short aside, um, you know, like from that community, their idea of uh, commitment is more emotional commitment as opposed to a physical commitment. Um, very different definition. I mean, with this whole marriage debate, they may be using the same word, but the meaning is entirely different. So I'll just stop there. Um, I think being part of that sort of demimonde of the gay world uh, at that age as a very young adult I found very exciting, but also it was very much like an emotional roller coaster. Um, I felt a bit ungrounded. I never spoke to my family about it, although I did tell them eventually what I was doing. Um, but even when I was paired up with another guy, I never felt comfortable introducing them, um, which I think just reflects my deeper knowledge that there was something wrong with it. Um, and I think for those years, uh, if you had asked me, or if I, had, if I could ask myself somehow as a person of that, you know, at age 20, are you happy? Do you, you know, is life good? Are you, are you enjoying life? I would have said very much yes, because I was very happy. I was as happy as I knew uh, I could be, um, which is very different from the happiness or the joy that I know today. It's very different. Um, it's analogous to asking an eight-year-old, uh, you know, what it's like to get married or something. The, the, the child has no idea. They just don't. They haven't developed that much. I think that's very true for myself as a young man and that lifestyle. Um, you know, I just wasn't developed enough emotionally. Um, I think there was a tremendous uh, amount of... Um, sort of ego built into it, and um, uh, but I was as happy as I knew how to be. So uh, uh, I, th I think that's um, very important. You know, like the, the, the person in this lifestyle really often has no reference point for life outside of the lifestyle, even if they see family and other people all around them. Sometimes it's very, uh, you can have very thick walls that just do not permeate. Um, but I was very happy. I, you know, had a good, good uh, career going. I later um, joined a church. It was the Episcopal Church, uh, which I liked very much. Actually, it was a fairly traditional Episcopal Church, I should add. I uh, should never know what that means. Um, by Episcopal, but, and I started studying the Bible with this church, I started singing in their choir, I did all kinds of ministries, I was very involved, um, but, you know, their concern was always with externals, you know, so long as you looked good, and you're, you kind of fit in, like culturally, um, then you belonged. They, they never, there's no, no, I suppose they do have a sacrament of confession, but it's not so overt. Um, certainly this church I was involved in, this parish had no confession. Um, 
posted or regularly offered, but there was no, it was really very external, kind of like a club, like a wonderful club. Um, and that surmises a lot of the lifestyle. I think it's very much focused on externals. Uh, I was going to a gym. I was in great physical shape. Um, I drove a convertible car. You know, I lived in the, the sort of the, the right part of town. And uh, it was, um, you know, I enjoyed, like I said, I, I, I thought I was enjoying life very much. Uh, this went on for about 20 years. I was in the lifestyle for about 20 years, from my teens to my mid, mid to late 30s. And um, my mother, let me just talk about her for a minute. It's an important part of the story. Um, my mother did take us to church periodically. Um, she was raised uh, very Catholic, um, still believed, although it was very hard for her to get to Mass with a uh, big family and uh, various things that distracted her. Um, but when we did go, she always would have tears in her eyes at the consecration. Oh, we, oh, we, we used to joke about it as kids. You know, when the priest would, would raise the host, she would always, always, always have tears. And I would often be, you know, right under her wing and very close to her and um, definitely was a seed that was planted um, in me for sure. Uh, later on, um, she passed away from cancer, very slow death, um, but it was also a very beautiful death. She, she modeled a very good death. She died with the sacraments, and she really, uh, it's a bit of a cliche, but she really sort of had her purgatory with her on earth with her illness before she went. She really was purified by it, and she really did model a very, very good uh, Catholic death. Uh, I moved home from Boston to help with caring for her at the end, and then with the settling of the estate, moved back to Boston, um, back with my old friends and all of that stuff, and moved back to my old building, uh, which was maybe a block and a half, two blocks from the cathedral in Boston, uh, Holy Cross Cathedral, which is... Uh, very kind of grand cathedral, but in a part of town that had long since been Catholic. Um, now I was uh, away from the church. I was a practicing Protestant. Uh, I did, however, go to the Holy Land for part of my work rotation uh, when I was in college and did a lot of the holy things in the Holy Land. And... Part of that was I got to know the community at Echehomo, which is the second station of the cross, which is a large Catholic compound. And uh, they were wonderful people, very welcoming. And uh, while I was there, I thought, oh, you know, these feelings I have towards the church, really, they, I, I, you know, I, I kind of, they, it helped, gave me a little bit of healing towards the church. Uh, then uh, mom died but maybe four or five years later. Then I moved back to Boston. And at this time, the Episcopal Church I had been practicing in, the pastor 
had retired. He was really a mentor figure for me, very grandfatherly. And his replacement was a kind of a modern liberal. The church really moved to the left uh, quite a bit. And then I eventually dropped out, um, even though my life might have been a little uh, liberal, you might say. I thought religion should be more conservative, um, ironically. So I started visiting other churches, and then when I moved back to this uh, old neighborhood where I had been and had a view of, like, out my front door, had a view of the cathedral, I thought, gee, and then after being in the Holy Land and seeing my mother's death, I thought, I should just pop in there sometime. Uh, Why not? I'm checking out all these other churches. Why don't I consider this church as well, which I really hadn't done before. And so one day I did. Uh, I I don't remember the day exactly, but it was on a Sunday in August. And uh, in Boston, August is um, just empty. uh, The city is much smaller than it normally is. And I went down to Mass. I walked into the church. And if if you ever go to the cathedral, it's a very beautiful 19th century building, but it's basically surrounded by a lot of public housing now and very few Catholics in the area, whereas originally it had been a very strong Catholic area. So it's a very modest parish in, the, in this very grand building. Um, but I went in and I knelt and started to pray. Um, I certainly knew how to pray from uh, my years in the Episcopal Church. So I just went and knelt and prayed. And immediately, um, I had a very strong uh, vision in my mind of uh, my mother, who had died four or five years before that, kind of in her glory in heaven. Uh, I was seeing this in my mind's eye above the altar. And... It was very powerful. I, it was the last thing on my mind. I, I assure you, this is not the typical story in courage, but um, <laughs> but it's my story. Um, I immediately saw her above the altar in her glory, and I knew immediately that she was in heaven, and that she wanted everyone to be with her in heaven, and that the way to heaven was through the Catholic Church. And that somehow there was sort of like a window through the altar of the church where she could somehow, where all this happened. Um, And I was very struck. I was, you know, I was kind of sitting in the back of the church. I didn't want to kind of sit too far front or anything. And, but I was just, you know, I was very moved, you know, the tears were coming down. And I knew that I was in the true church. I knew that immediately. Um, I mean, all this just without words and just um, sort of in an instant. And uh, and the Mass also, the Mass was the same Mass that I had grew, grown up with. Um, and I had spent many years of my adult life sort of trying to forget or going away or fighting or denying all that I had grown up with. But there it was in front of me, the same as it had always been. Um, But I was the one coming back. 
uh, to something that had never changed. And um, so I, um, I received, sorry, Father, I, re- I received Eucharist that day without the grace of confession. <laughs> but looking back on it, I don't know, I'd have to talk to you about this. <laughs> I, I would defer to your judgment on this. But looking back on it, I, I felt, let's just say I felt that I had kind of um, an infused grace. And I accepted the church, I accepted the teachings, I accepted that it was Jesus Christ. And, um, and I received with great joy. And, but in the, this is within the, how old was I? I was, that was 19... 98. That means I was 37. In the midst of all this, I was, you know, uh, going to the gym, driving my convertible. I was kind of in, in the thick of all that. It's a very, a uh, lot of diversity in one lifestyle. So, my life in the gay community continued. Um, because that was the only community I, I knew, I told my friends, and honestly, they were, they kind of did share my joy somewhat in it. And my memory of that phase of life was um, the expressions on people's faces when I would, you know, just sort of share with them, or even if I wasn't sharing with them, just the joy that I was feeling was mirrored back in so many other faces where you would least expect it. Um, I really felt like I was uh, bringing the Eucharist to these people that would never darken the door of a church. Um, uh, I remember at the time thinking it was like a rock thrown in a pond. You know, the the waves just keep going and going and going and they never stop. Um, and it was very beautiful. And I started attending. They had an adult catechism class, which I started attending. And they had a choir, which I'd always been a, a singer. I joined the choir. And um, didn't know what to do about the whole confession thing, though. I wasn't quite ready for that. Uh, although, my, um, although I had uh, grown... In chastity since that since that moment, uh, not perfectly, not completely, um, but I knew that I should go to confession. I just wasn't sure how or when or how all that was going to happen. Uh, so, uh, I but I did know how to pray. So I just thought. I'm going to pray on this. This, this initially, this, this, this kind of experience happened in August. I thought I'll pray on this, and I will go to confession on Good Friday, giving myself lots of time. <coughs> Didn't want to rush, <clears throat> so I did. I prayed on it, and I thought I'll go to confession on Good Friday. Um, Ironically, my older sister, who lived about an hour from me, she, at the same time, uh, but without the same experience, she also became went from being completely secular or lapsed Catholic to being very devout, devout 
and we both attended a, like a Bible class at a Catholic parish together. We started doing Catholic things together, completely out of the blue. And she was amazed at my experience, and I was amazed that she was throwing herself into the church. Um, we thought our mother had everything to do with it. Um, so Lent began, and I knew all about Lent from the uh, Episcopal Church. They had Lent, and I had a very devout Lent, and I knew that my confession was coming, so I was praying, and I knew what I had to confess. And Good Friday came, and the elderly priest who had been teaching the adult catechism class was there uh, hearing confessions as well as a lot of other priests, so I went to him. And, uh, you know, I said, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been 30 years since my last confession. And I would like to confess a lifetime of unchastity. And this very elderly priest, was very kindly man, um, you know, uh, welcomed me back into the church. He said, this is a very welcoming and loving church and, uh, you know, couldn't have been kinder. Um, you know, we had a whole conversation over it. He wanted to know, you know, asked me several questions. And then, then he asked me if I had anything else to confess. <laughs> I said, Father, isn't that enough? <laughs> I mean, I couldn't think of any. That was the, you know, that was the one thing. I couldn't really think beyond that. Um, and that was in 1999, uh, Good Friday of 99. Uh, I'd moved to Boston uh, in the lifestyle. I was still there. I thought, after a while, I thought, you know, it would be really nice to have a change of scenery where I can start, start new. Uh, the economy was booming in those years, kind of distant memory today, but... Um, and there were a lot of innovations uh, coming out in uh, the I field, which is my field. And I just got on the line and looked for a job one day, and I found a very attractive job down in New York. And I thought, well, and I also had some debt issues. Actually, in the lifestyle, I was sort of spending more than I was bringing in, which um, doesn't really work too well. Uh, someone should tell this to our, to our government. Um, <clears throat> but I realized not only did I need to get my spiritual house in order, that gave me the, the insight or the strength or the kind of, I feel like I entered the real world. I kind of saw things more realistically instead of like a fantasy, and that included my personal finances, which needed to be brought into shape. So I ended up taking a very good-paying job down in New York. Uh, my father's from New York. I mean, I always, New York is not far from Massachusetts, I was New New York, and um, so it was a not so difficult move. Um, and it was a, a new beginning. I, I really thought very strongly I can go anywhere where there's a Catholic church. As long as there's a Catholic church, I will be fine, which was very true. Um, I, I offered myself to uh, the diocese there for uh, priesthood. I thought maybe I should be a priest. You know, after discerning several years with them, they, they said, you know, uh, you're a great guy, but I think this is too much for us, <laughs> which is fine. Um, and 
uh, still live up there, and um, you know, the, uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful, strong church community there. I'm very involved uh, with. Um, that's where I learned about courage. Uh, courage, the, the Catholic apostolate to those with same-sex attraction. The Father was talking about. I learned about that in New York. I never knew about it in Boston. They never, no one ever mentioned it. But I learned about that in I think '02, after a couple years of living in New York, um, and I got involved with Courage. Met other uh, guys and ladies that were kind of doing the same thing, just trying to live according to the church teaching. Really, that's uh, what it's all about. And um, you know, I've been uh, uh, dating. I hope to get married. I've been. Um, that's been very good, and um, I've been very involved with the church for since that period onward. I can honestly say that that moment in that cathedral in '98 was um, there was a before and after, and that was 12 years ago. So, by God's grace, um, it has all continued uh, with with very few problems, uh, just normal life problems that I think anyone would have. Um, and of course it's an unfinished story it goes on and on Um, I just would like to say one thing about uh, courage and all these issues that it's it's really it's really an issue of chastity I mean my story uh, is unique to me I think there are commonalities with a lot of the SSA guys but with this issue and so many issues, it's, it's, it's a chastity issue. You know, we're all called to be chaste. All single people are called to be chaste. When you think of the issues of unchastity, the SSA stuff is, is small compared to everyone else. It's related very much to abortion, contraception, cohabitation, uh, and homosexuality. They're all together. Uh, homosexuality may be worse, may be more unnatural, uh, but it's... I like to talk about these issues as chastity. You know, it, chastity is a positive. When you talk about chastity, you're you're encouraging a positive as opposed to discouraging a negative. And in this politically charged environment, um, it's very hard to talk about the other issues. But um, but thank you for thank you for listening to my story. Now you know why the group is called Courage. It takes great courage and integrity for a man to get up and bear witness as he, as Jonah just did. So God reward him for that. Uh, I'd like to pick up on some things that Jonah touched on and kind of develop them a, a little more. Just, just bring them to your attention. But before that, I want to return to this point about language. Jonah used the term SSA uh, several times, and uh, and I, prior to that, had used the term same-sex attractions, and I hope you made the, the connection there. And uh, it's a clumsy expression, SSA, same-sex attractions. It's just, it's not easily said. It's too many syllables and all the rest. But it has the virtue of precision. 
So I'd like to talk about some of the language that is used and uh, what ought not be used. We shouldn't use the word orientation. There is really only one sexual orientation. When we talk about sexual orientation, what we're talking about is how is sexuality oriented? In what direction does it go? Well, based on what I said previously, human sexuality is meant to go only in one direction for those two purposes of life and love. That is the orientation of all human sexuality. So anything apart from that is, is not an orientation. It is what, as I discussed earlier, is a disorder. It's not a moral judgment on the particular person, but it's just an expression of uh, the direction in which the desires go. It's very trendy to talk about an orientation, uh, and it's, but it's not accurate. And the inaccuracy of it is shown in the proliferation of terms that we have in this area. It, once upon a time, was just gay or straight. Now you have gay, straight, lesbian, and, and went online and kind of found a list. Um, bisexual, pansexual, polysexual, transgendered, transsexual, queer, and questioning. And the last one, I think, summarizes it all. I mean, once we lose sight of the fact that there is a proper orientation for human sexuality, it's not that we'll just get, oh, maybe two or three. It's that we have just complete confusion and really chaos regarding this, this issue. So we have, to, we have to avoid those terms. That's why same-sex attractions is clumsy but more accurate. To call someone gay or lesbian, that, first of all, it has political overtones to it. It's, it's what's used culturally in sort of a political sense. Uh, it also has the effect of sort of locking the person into the uh, sexual attraction and saying, ah, that person is gay, that person is lesbian, or whatever of the many terms might be used. Uh, that's, again, unfair to the person. Uh, Joni used the term self-identify, that uh, someone who self-identified as gay. And uh, th that's a very important point to, to consider, that it, it is one thing to acknowledge, okay, I have same-sex attractions, I'm feeling this attraction to, to someone, and this is not the way in which my attractions should go. It's another thing to, to identify oneself by those attractions. So there's a distinction between someone who feels the attractions and someone who self-identifies. And a lot of the work of courage is simply to stop the self-identifying. And in fact, uh, the conference last summer, Jonah was there. One of, uh, in a witness talk, one of the guys said he called a priest and he said, uh, I'm gay. And the priest said, well, first thing is stop thinking of yourself as gay. And which, which seems just so simple and blunt as to be completely useless. But for this man in particular, he said that was, it was like, it was great. It was just, he was given permission just to, you know, don't, don't lock yourself into that. Don't paint yourself into that corner. So we have to be very careful in our language that we don't use the language that encourages self-identification. And this is also true in uh, being very careful of the language, especially I know some of you here work with high schoolers or college students. Uh, it can be some pretty uncharitable words tossed around or words tossed around in a careless way that can hurt others. I remember in high school the word gay was used 
not uh, it was used as as an insult, but it wasn't meant as something describing a person's sexuality. And I see the same thing is present still in high school. And I wince when I hear kids uh, use it because I know how damaging that can be to someone who is struggling with same-sex attractions. And so when kids throw around these terms, it can be very damaging. And the whole incident with the the, the suicide of the student uh, up at, at Rutgers, that was such a tragic incident uh, because it... Uh, Instead of giving this young man uh, assistance in a way to um, to find help, he was sort of locked into something, and and uh, and he grew despondent. So we have to be very careful with our language, that we don't hurt others by our careless use of it, and also that we don't buy into the labeling and the self-identifying by our use of language. Those of you who have read Brideshead Revisited, uh, you may have kind of sensed something in Jonah's story from that book. His mom sounds like Lady Marchmain. And uh, in that book, uh, they use a line from G.K. Chesterton, uh, that the twitch on a string, that God can bring a soul back with a twitch on a string. And gosh, that sounds like what happened in that day in Holy Cross Cathedral in Boston, that twitch on the string. And it's a great reminder to us of the power of grace and the mysterious working of grace when it seems to be hidden from our eyes, when it seems that it's not operative at all, God can give that twitch on a string. And so I want to point out the hope that Jonah's story brings out and many others like his, uh, because those uh, of you who are, you know, have family members or friends who are in the lifestyle and wonder what, what can be done, uh, and is there hope? They, well, the answer clearly uh, by Jonah's testimony is yes. And there are other testimonies like his as well. I want to point out the importance of stability. He knew where to go. The church, I love the way Jonah described it, that the church was the same as it had been. It was the same as it had been. Uh, many Catholics, unfortunately, kind of grow tired. Why can't the church change and things like that? And if the church is, is changing, then she's adrift. If she, if she pulls up anchor, then she's adrift. And she's really not helpful to anyone. When the church is the same, then people know how to get home. If home is always shifting, it's very difficult to return. And so the beauty of the church's stability was one thing that afforded uh, Jonah and, as I know from other testimonies, the ability to come home. One man in, in Courage uh, some years ago when the bishops' conference released a very good statement on this issue and just repeated the church's teaching, and he ran across the line that, that the attractions are uh, objectively disordered, that resonated with him. And that's what prompted him to contact me about, uh, about coming to, to Courage and eventually entering the Catholic Church, actually. And he said, I have always known and felt that these attractions and the, were, were disordered. It was so relieving to hear someone say it. That stability, that strength was a source of support and enabled uh, that soul and many others to come back. Another thing I want to point out the priest in the confessional did not say, don't worry about it. He didn't downplay the sins. 
He didn't treat, treat them as if they were nothing, nor did he try to justify misbehavior, but he acknowledged the sinfulness of them. Please pray for priests with courage and pray for the priests who are in courage, please. Uh, pray that, that priests, when penitents come to them with these uh, sins, that the priest responds charitably and strongly. Charity without strength really is useless. Strength without charity is dangerous. Pray that priests have both. One witness talker heard some years ago, um, the, <laughs> the, uh, the man was uh, very forceful. Uh, he was speaking to a group of priests, and he said, don't trivialize my sins. This is very important in priestly formation and very important for you to pray for as regards priests, that they, they not trivialize sins in the confessional, but that they meet the penitent with the fullness of the church's teaching and the fullness of Christ's charity. Another aspect that I want to bring out from, from Jonah's witness that, that has great bearing on the work of courage, he made the point it was an entire conversion. It wasn't just one part of his life, but, but and we talked about the finances, and we all winced. We said, yeah, okay, that's me too, right? Uh, the, the finances had to change as well. It wasn't just one area. And this is true for any conversion. This is not unique to courage. This is true for any conversion. But it really does get to the heart of what courage is about. It is not just about correcting this one area of the life, because this one area of the life uh, is connected to all of the others, so it is the entire life that has to be changed. And, and courage, again, as Jonah pointed out, it's a positive goal to live chastity. It's not just a colossal no that is being stated. That's not the church's teaching. It is a yes to the living out of chastity, which means living out of our baptism. That is what the work of courage is about, is, yes, ad- addressing, obviously, uh, the need to refrain from, from sinful actions, uh, the, the need to cultivate an identity that is broader than the self-identity of a homosexual, but really it's conversion of the entire life. And uh, uh, Deacon Levy, who will be speaking uh, a little later, he'll go over the five goals of courage. It will bring out uh, this aspect that really the, the purpose is much broader than, than just living uh, continence. It is living chastity and a spiritual renewal of the entire life. Uh, the temperaments, the issue of the temperaments, uh, the, the temperaments are something that, that, that we're sort of born with. You know, we all, you know, some people are, you know, just, just different personality traits, different temperaments. And it's very interesting how they can sort of conflict. And nobody's really at fault. You know, they, we kind of run into each other. And uh, I think it's beautiful how Jonah uh, witnessed the fact that his parents did the best that they knew. Uh, and there, there, there's no laying of blame there. I want to address also the adolescence confusion. You might think that the etymology of adolescence is confusion, because that's just kind of what it felt like, right? And, and that's what it looks like a lot of times, right? At that age, we are trying to figure out who we are and trying to understand who we are. That's a difficult thing to do at any age. But in adolescence, when you have all of these other things coming at you, one of the worst trends right now is the encouragement of adolescence in the high school level, and especially in college, but it's trickling down even to the middle school level. The encouragement of adolescence to self-identify as gay or lesbian or bisexual or whatever else. 
In fact, it's somewhat trendy. And so a lot of public high schools now have uh, gay and lesbian clubs or uh, groups and things like that. This is very damaging to do to an adolescent regarding anything. And notice that, uh, at least I remember when I was in high school, that uh, we were exhorted not to identify people, not to label people. Well, he's a jock, she's a cheerleader, whatever else. We are encouraged not to do that because the person is broader than that label that you're putting on them. But suddenly, in this regard, in this area, which is one of the most confusing and confused, suddenly adolescents are being encouraged to assume a label. And that label, unfortunately, might, might last a lifetime, even after they're very tired of it. And so that is something that we have to uh, oppose very strongly. And, uh, and this is really just common sense. Uh, a 16-year-old does not know who he is yet. And we, we shouldn't uh, give in to just saying, well, yes, I will accept your labeling of yourself. And so back to what that priest said to the guy who called him. The priest said, well, first, stop thinking of yourself as gay. That's it, good advice. It's very blunt. Perhaps it could be delivered a little uh, less bluntly, but I think this is a very uh, good point to keep in mind because one of the things in the uh, homosexual culture that is insisted upon is that this is who I am. This is my identity. I want to be thought of this way. And the response to that uh, should be firm and charitable. I will not limit your identity to that. I think of you more deeply more broadly than that. You are more than the sum total of your sexual attractions. And if we do that, uh, we might, probably will, meet with resistance and perhaps even hostility. But down the road, we will also have established ourselves as that stable place, that stable witness that somebody can return to. That person who said, I think of you more broadly, and I love you for something more deep than you realize you are. I'm not willing to confine you to that, to paint you into that corner. This issue of labeling is very much at the heart of the whole issue as we, as we see it played out in culture. Some wanting to label those with same-sex attractions, others wanting to assume the label, and the church wanting to insist that the human person is a much deeper, much, much more profound truth than just the label of a sexual identity.